an invertebrate freshwater creature barely measuring up to the length of a human fingernail shares its name with a legendary Greek monster a gigantic sea serpent the hydra hydra are in reality much more boring does not much to them they exist and they exist and they exist and here's the secret they can exist forever humans have been famously obsessed with immortality today there's a group of powerful people espousing a philosophy known as long-termism it's an ethical stance that aims to maximize long-term human potential we're talking potential that extends trillions of years into the future by minimizing existential risks it's a philosophy that intuitively stems from the impulse for longevity but the humble hydra like a silent ascetic teacher shows us that there are more important things to aspire to than living forever hey this is rohita hey this is ananya and we're going to be taking you all through a journey that spans space time continents the cosmic the microcosmic and everything in between today we're starting small and leaping into the unimaginable future all at once the hydra is a tiny creature who like the best of monks is unobtrusive it's impassive cut it in half and you have two whole hydra with the same genetic material chop off its head and it simply regrows one for that matter lop off any part of its body and a new body part takes its place and it's an ability that hasn't got the attention of the powerful elite yet but if it did it could show them the futility of a project they're currently embroiled in the long term is project today we have professor daniel martinez and emil p torres they show us how to think about our future by simply looking into the undying present of the hydra this portal presents the missing link i'm daniel martinez i'm a professor of biology and i work with an animal my research is based on an animal that doesn't age it's called the hydra and it's a pretty small little animal that lives in ponds and rivers around the world fascinating yeah so i'm emil pitores and the last decade or so most of my work has focused on sort of global scale catastrophes so you know climate change is maybe the most obvious one along with uh, nuclear conflict uh but there're also you know very submerging risks as well associated with artificial intelligence and nanotechnology and synthetic biology and so on um so yeah my background is is philosophy and neuroscience but a lot of what i've done sort of falls within the domain of of kind of future studies and global catastrophic risk studies so yeah so the reason we brought the two of you together is because there's a lot of fascinating resonances between the idea of looking at long-termism as a philosophy and its existential questions and also looking at the fact that there is a creature right now that is immortal and ageless but before we unpack that let's ask you both what is long-termism and why do we say the hydra is immortal um yeah so th- this is in ideology that's become really influential in the world in general in particular the, within the tech um uh, industry you know Elon Musk has called it quote a, cl- a close match for my philosophy 
um, there's some reports that it's becoming influential within, you know, very powerful uh, international governing bodies like the United Nations. And um, the essence of, well, I mean, historically, the the long-termist ideology can be traced back to probably to the 19th century, but most notably in the 1980s, in the work of a number of uh, philosophers who were accepted a particular ethical theory called utilitarianism. But it's really been over the past 20 years that it's it's developed into uh, its contemporary form. And so the you know sort of crucial aspects of this ideology, uh, this sort of techno-futuristic ideology, is uh, based on this idea that humanity so far has existed for you know 200, uh, 300,000 years uh, on Earth. So, you know, quite a long uh, past, but the future could absolutely dwarf the amount of time we've spent <laughs> on Earth so far. So, you know, we could, if we colonize space, if we stay on Earth, we, you know, we could survive for another billion years or 800 million years or something like that. If we colonize space, you know, according to cosmologists, you know, protons might decay in 10 to the 40 years or something. So maybe that's a hard limit on uh, the existence of, of intelligent creatures like us. But the heat death is, is way beyond that. So, you know, our future could be... Uh, could stretch along uh, across a very long period of time. And furthermore, if we spread throughout the universe, the future human population could be enormous. And so from a particular ethical uh, perspective, the more people there are in the universe with net positive amounts of value, happiness, something like that, the better the universe as a whole becomes. And so the, the key idea... <laughs> of long-termism is that uh, it, it has to do with the question of how should we prioritize certain actions in the present? Should we be focusing on contemporary problems and current day people, or should we be focusing on the far future? Okay. Can I ask a question? Yeah. What are the implications for that? That we are going to forget about us now? Uh, we're only going to concentrate on the future, so whatever our current problems are, are we shouldn't take care of them. So what, what's, what's the idea? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think the, the long-termists would say uh, it, in so, only insofar as doing so will influence the very far future. And so it's, it's really just a numbers game. There's just, there's so many people who could exist in the future. You know, Nick Bostrom estimates that if we colonize space and we create huge planet-sized computers on which to run virtual, uh, virtual reality worlds where you've got all these digital people, you know, there could be 10 to the 58 uh, people. So for, for listeners, that's a one followed by 58 zeros. So it's just an enormous future population. If everybody counts for one, then you have a very strong uh, argument for focusing on trying to influence these 10 to the 58 digital people in the far future rather than just the 8 billion people today. So it's not like a, it's not a, a strict argument that we should uh, neglect current problems. It's just we should think about them in instrumental terms. Maybe we should address them as just a means to the end, which is this greater cosmic good in the far future. That's really fascinating, right? Because, Professor Daniel, you've studied the Hydra and they've existed for millennia now. How can we connect the idea that this creature actually exists with the fact that there's an aspiration among humans towards a future where future people matter and there's a really long view of humanity in general? Is that a flawed position? When I started working on my PhD, evolutionary theory suggested that animals in general should not escape aging. That aging was an evolved feature of all animals and there's no way around it. In fact, when I found the claim that Hydra was immortal in the literature based on the ability that it has to regenerate, if you cut a Hydra in three pieces, you get three Hydra. 
So based on that, on that incredible regeneration capacity, it was suggested that Hydra should not age, but nobody had done the experiment to prove it. So I decided to actually, based on the dogma at the time, the scientific dogma that all animals should age, I started an experiment thinking that I was going to prove that actually was mortal and an age like everybody else. So I started the experiment. I'm a scientist, so I don't have preconceived notions. But if you ask me, I thought I was going to prove that Hydra will be mortal, not immortal. And I did experiment after four years of keeping Hydra individually separated and taking good care of them. I noticed that the mortality was basically nil. There was no Hydra dying, which is incredible because Hydra are very tiny and things that are small don't live very long. They, they last weeks, uh, flies last weeks, not months, not years. So things that are tiny die relatively soon. And Hydra survived 40 years. And later on, we repeated experiments and we have Hydra in the lab for many Hydra in the lab for 12 years. So there's something special about the Hydra. And uh, what seems to be special is the fact that Hydra has a body like us, or almost all animals have a, 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 a body made of stem cells. Stem cells. They're cells that can turn into any type of cell. They are undifferentiated by function. They serve important repair functions in the body. In medical research, it's embryonic stem cells that are of greatest interest. And scientists have tried turning adult stem cells into those that resemble embryonic ones for their ability to turn into virtually any kind of specialized cell, like cells of the brain, blood, muscle, and so on. Many believe that the key to treating some of the most challenging illnesses of our times lies in stem cells, a holy grail that Hydra almost exclusively seem to be made of. They can regenerate, rejuvenate the body of the Hydra by constantly being uh, reproducing. If there are any differentiated cells, uh, those cells were going to be pushed out of the Hydra. So the entire body of the Hydra is relatively new. So it seems that this is a way Hydra uh, can escape aging. Now, our bodies uh, are completely different from that. So the idea that because Hydra may be immortal, we will be, we could aspire to be immortal. At least scientifically, it doesn't make sense to me. And there's, there are scientists who believe that we will be able to do it. I don't think so. I think that Hydra is very distinct, very different from us, and we will not be able to do that. That's really interesting. And that's exactly the intersection between immortality and long-termism. We know that people like Peter Thiel are investing very heavily in stem cell research and anti-aging. Is it a coincidence that the same people are also proponents of the long-termist philosophy? Yeah, I, I think so. Going back to the history of long-termism once again, um, you know, it's an ideology that really emerged out of the transhumanist, the, the modern transhumanist movement. So transhumanism is an idea that goes back to the uh, really early 20th century. Julian Huxley, a biologist, um, uh, developed the idea along with, with some others like J.B.S. Haldane and J.D. Uh, Bernal. Fun fact, one of Julian Huxley's brothers was Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, 
a dystopian novel in which humans in the future are lulled into pain-free happiness using a drug named Soma. They grow babies in bottles, worship Henry Ford, and are separated by a caste system which ranks them by their abilities. It was a critique of technological progress and the way that humans pursue happiness at the expense of their own humanity. According to the publisher of We Are Amphibians, Julian and Aldous Huxley on the future of our species, while they often disagreed about the role of science and technology in human progress, Julian and Aldous Huxley both believed that the future of our species depends on a saner set of relations with each other and with our environment. Uh, and initially, Huxley referred to it uh, under the term evolutionary humanism. It was supposed to be this new kind of secular religion. Um, but he popularized the term in 1950s, late 1950s. And basically, it was that, you know, if we could use sort of methods of genetic uh, change, you know, ways of eugenics um, <clears throat> to not just create the most perfect version of ourselves, but to, to actually transcend humanity. And so this idea then was combined with new developments in the second half of the 20th century in biotechnology, genetic engineering, and so on. And people realized like, oh, actually, maybe we don't need to, to change population level uh, patterns of reproduction. Maybe we can just, in a single lifetime or over just one generation, we can radically modify our genes. And so this idea was then, you know, this is sort of called the second wave eugenics, <laughs> second wave of, of eugenics. And one version of his transhumanism and Nick Bostrom, he has been one of the most influential uh, transhumanists, uh, certainly of the, the 21st century so far, along with people like Ray Kurzweil. And he's also the individual I would call the father of long-termism. So from the, the the beginnings, there was definitely this interest in like radical human enhancement. How can we use these amazing technologies? And one of the ways that they were excited, one of the things they were really excited about is the possibility of gaining immortality, figuring out how to, to cure this problem of, of aging. There's more to say about that, but I mean, these ideologies are very much, you know, intermingled with each other, very much enmeshed together. And I don't think that, I wouldn't say that Peter Thiel is a long-termist, but he's definitely in that space and would probably be, uh, one could probably classify him as a, a transhumanist. Obviously there, there've been rumors, which I think are false about him getting blood transfusions from, from young people, uh, things of this sort. But I mean, that whole, you know, Elon Musk is definitely a long-termist as mentioned before. And obviously he's, uh, you know, one of his companies is Neuralink, which is a very kind of transhumanist, uh, its mission is is very consistent with uh, the transhumanist aim of you know modifying ourselves. For example, by you know uh, creating these brain computer interfaces, you know neural uh, chips and so on. So there's history there, and yeah, it's it's not a coincidence. I think that a lot of the the long termists also are very interested in anti aging technologies. Professor Martinez, you on the other hand have been called the reluctant immortalist. While Hydra might be immortal, what does this immortality mean in the context of human beings? Is it a worthy aspiration? You have also spoken of your disinterest in studying the Hydra's immortality further, but why? Well, I think as scientists, uh, we should try to improve the quality of life. I don't want personally to be immortal. Perhaps that's why I was called a reluctant immortalist. I, I think it's a bad idea from a spiritual point of view. Uh, but 
anything that we scientists should try to clean up cells so we can live longer. We should try to do as much as we can do uh, within you know, the limits of ethics, right? We're not going to do it for a particular race over the other. We, we, you know, but any, any, from the point of view of scientists, yes, we should try to make our lives better. If somebody, some scientists have the goal, the ultimate goal in mind that we should be immortal, fine. As long as we do it with it, you know, within um, the limits of, 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 of ethics, uh, it's fine. Uh, the, the, why they're moved, I don't care. Should we do it? Yeah, we should try. I, I don't think we will be immortal, but uh, yeah, anything that, uh, you know, that can make us live better uh, should be good. Uh, we can inject stem cells into humans and that makes us live better, age better. Fine. You know, I, I'm, I'm, but then there will be a point where the, 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 uh, the society needs to decide what is ethical, what is not. What should we do or not? You know, I'm not for eugenics. You know, I don't think we should start manipulating and creating babies uh, this, you know, with special features. Uh, I mean, I, I've been asked for a hydro cream for many, many, many years because people would like to have the hydro cream. And I don't believe that they would do anything. I, could I commercialize it and sell it? Probably. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it's a matter of, of people's egos and, and, and what you convince yourself that it's possible. So, but I'm, I'm not a good for that because I'm the reluctant immortality. So I don't know. You have mentioned that you think it's probably not possible for us to become immortal. Are you optimistic about nonetheless extending our lifespans um, by, you know, hundred years uh, or, or more than that? I mean, you know, we, we could exist for, you know, a million years and not be immortal, but a million years is, is a huge improvement on, 70 or 80. Well, we have already a double our, I mean, you know, kings in, in, in medieval times lived 30, 40 years tops. So we already live in double and we have a, we can reach a, all ages in, in better shape. So we have already done it. I think that there is going to be a biological limit of how much we can do. If you ask me, I don't think we're going to get to 200 years. We might live 120 in good shape, uh, but I don't think we will go beyond that. Uh, I think that there is a biological limit. There is selection for genes to make us very strong when we are young. Uh, to to because it's a it's, it's a game of reproduction of reproduction, not passing your genes to the next generation. Anything that makes you make that enterprise successful will be selected for. Anything that doesn't. It's not going to be selected for so, uh, and, and and we can't escape uh, millions of years of evolution. So I I don't think we will go beyond 120, 130. But that's a personal belief. You know, some other people might say, "Well, Martinez is wrong." Okay, but at what point does aspiring to improve our lifespan cross over into transhumanism? I mean, is there an ethical limit in that sense? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, as mentioned, you know we've we've we have ex extended you know human um, life expectancy uh, longevity uh, quite a bit you know over the past few centuries. 20th century, I think in particular in the the sort of global north lifespans have uh, have increased you know quite a bit, along with height, gotten taller because we had better diets and so on. So um, 
And yeah, I mean, there's sort of this distinction between therapies and enhancements. And it's a very fuzzy, the, the, the boundary between the two is very fuzzy. And, you know, right now there, there's uh, generally much more acceptance of therapies or therapeutic uh, uh, interventions rather than enhancive uh, interventions. And so, you know, sometimes uh, what appear to be quite radical at first, uh, you know, end up being just sort of uh, widely accepted over time. Transhumanism in general speaking could really just exacerbate um, global inequality. Uh, so I, I'm not I'm not a particularly big fan of uh, Yuval Noah Harari's work for, for many reasons, but he does have this, this nice section uh, in his book, Homo Deus, um, called Upgrading Inequality. It basically makes the case that, that a lot of these, these technologies that aim to radically enhance us are different than technologies of the 20th century that, that aim to improve public health, like vaccines, where there's, you know, the elites sort of have a, an interest in everybody being, you know, remaining uh, sufficiently healthy because that's, you know, important for the engines of the economy to, to keep roaring and so on. But with these technologies, there's a particular interest in the masses, in the demos, not gaining access to them. So, so I, I'm quite worried that these, you know, power will be, uh, will be entrenched even more th than it is. And, you know, there might be this elite class of people who have access to radical enhancement technologies, and there's just kind of everybody else. And the people at the top have just a very strong self-interested reason to do what they can to prevent <laughs> people, uh, you know, lower down in, in the, the power hierarchy from ever getting access. Emil, you also spoke about climate change at the beginning. And the other point in long-termism is this idea of existential risk. Because you've written about how there are certain factions of people who believe that climate change and other disasters that might cause widespread damage, they might kill people, but they're not existential risks, just as long as they don't wipe out humanity entirely. First of all, the, the notion of existential risk was originally defined in explicitly transhumanist terms. You know, it's, it was basically any event that would uh, permanently prevent the full realization of the transhumanist project. So the most obvious case would be human extinction. But there are plenty of survivable scenarios as well. Like, for example, if we just decided not to develop these advanced technologies, synthetic biology, nanotechnology, advanced AI, and so on, that itself would constitute an existential uh, catastrophe. Um, and yeah, then the, the, that idea sort of evolved a bit over time to refer to any event that uh, would permanently prevent us from fulfilling our long-term potential in the universe over millions, billions, trillions of years. Uh, what does potential mean? Well, one aspect of potential is transhumanism, is becoming post-human through radical enhancements. The other aspect was what I had mentioned before, which has to do with maximizing value. And the way we maximize value is we go out and colonize space um, and you know create these giant computer <laughs> computers uh, made out of something called computronium, you know, it's it's uh, matter that's optimized to to perform computations. Then we create these simulated worlds because you can cram more people into a simulated world than you can on exoplanets or in spaceships and so on. So then you just in, you know maximize the future population. So that's the other aspect of realizing our long term potential in the universe. So all of this is to say that you know climate change. Um, it's, it seems very unlikely to actually result in our extinction. I think most climatologists would uh, agree with that. There's a small chance that it, there might be a runaway greenhouse uh, scenario and Earth ends up being 
uninhabitable like Venus, but that seems very, very improbable. Um, it also seems unlikely that it's going to completely destroy uh, industrial civilization. Industrial civilization is the stepping stone to colonizing space and maximizing value. So from the particular long-termist point of view, climate change, yes, it's going to be it's going to be really bad and unprecedented and you know, particularly harsh for people in the global south uh, who are the least responsible for you know, the greenhouse uh, emissions. But in the grand scheme of thing, things, and I, this is sort of the key idea, is that you, know, you really need to think about the grand sweep of cosmic history. And you know, here we are, we've existed, like I said, 300,000 years uh, on Earth. Future could be just many, many orders of magnitude longer and larger than it, it so far has been. So from this perspective, climate change suddenly ends up looking like it's it's not it's just not that huge a deal. It's probably not an existential uh, risk, unlike something uh, you know like artificial superintelligence. According to them, that's a, that's a much uh, more serious threat. You know, Toby Ord, one of the leading long-termists, gives it a one in ten chance of uh, causing our extinction. I think he gives climate change a one in 1,000 uh, chance. So that's how you end up with this kind of minimizing, uh, minimization, trivialization of, of uh, the threat posed by climate change. And it's something I've, in my writings, have, uh, have criticized long-termists harshly for. The idea of immortality here, it speaks to the idea of human longevity to the order of trillions of years. So in that sense, in that scale, is that something even worth aspiring to? Because the long-termist vision seems to not care about human life as it is right now. I think there are a couple issues here. One is the, you know, the, the notion of transhumanism. Uh, there is a kind of uh, ethical, you know, dimension to it. But, all, but it, also there's a very um, prominent kind of self-interested reason one might uh, subscribe to the transhumanist ideology, namely that. If we develop these technologies soon, they could benefit you and me. You know, maybe uh, in my lifetime, technology is uh, life extension technology is developed that enables me to extend my my life by a single decade. And within that decade, because of the exponential, supposedly exponential development of these technologies, by the end of the decade, I can benefit from a technology that enables me to live another three decades. And then within that next three days, you know, so if if I just live long enough, I can live forever. And so there's this this very kind of self-interested uh, reason to uh, uh, to advocate for the development of these technologies. There's also this very abstract, impersonal way of thinking about things, which has to do with with kind of the influence of this ethical theory called utilitarianism, where it's the 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 sole moral obligation that we have is just to maximize value. Maximizing value doesn't require individuals to to gain uh, you know functional immortality or anything like that. Um, it just means that you know the humanity uh, persists for as long as possible. It's uh, individuals who subscribe to this transhumanist view that are are particularly interested in developing these technologies and trying to live forever. Trying to live long enough to to live forever, to reach what's called longevity escape velocity. If you just get past this threshold, then you're good to go. It almost feels like in the pursuit of longevity of human life, 
life itself is devalued right now in the present. I want to use that as a jumping off point to go back to something we were speaking about earlier. Professor Martinez, when you were confronted with something that is immortal right now, you weren't interested. Can you tell us a little more about that and maybe also scientifically speaking, is immortality not actually very interesting? Okay, I'm good. I'm going to give you my personal view. The reason why I stopped working on aging and actually moved altogether outside of the field, I continued to work on Hydra but not on aging, is that I felt that given who I am and my tools, I'm an evolutionary biologist, I couldn't contribute much more. I mean, having discovered that these things seem to be immortal was enough for me. And I was a lot more interested in other questions about the Hydra, for example, developmental questions, what genes control development, you know, how you get an embryo to make a baby, things like that. So, so to me, you know, the, the next question about the Hydra immortality wasn't as interested as the questions about, you know, making babies. So that was, you know, a personal choice. I mean... And I felt that I could contribute more to the other, the second question than to the first one, because I already had said, seem to be immortal. I was willing to repeat the experiment and we did uh, in collaboration with the Max Plan, we just look at Hydra for the longer time. We uh, confirmed my results and went much farther. So that's okay, but I, the, the the question of why wasn't more, wasn't interesting to me because I thought I knew the answer. And I didn't need to prove it for myself. Uh, Hydra is made of stem cells, very different from everybody else, all other animals. I, I was satisfied with that. Um, now, I think that any questions, uh, biological questions, is interesting. Uh, and I think that there should be people trying to pursue everything uh, that is biological, uh, approachable. Uh, so now, whether we need to set a goal, if you ask me whether we should spend more money on fighting climate change than studying immortality or the potential to immortality, I think that the, the answer is clear. We, sh we should study, you know, give more money to ecology research than to health, uh, well, to the immortality issue. Health is a different story. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, I think that the question is interesting, but it's a, ma it's a matter of limited resources. And to me, we should improve the life of, of people now. And one major threat right now is global uh, and climate change. So, um, Within limits, yes, we should study what we can do to live better and perhaps be immortal. I don't think we'll get there, but you know, maybe we can. Going back to what you said earlier, Emil, you spoke about global inequality and your concerns and criticisms about long-termism. So in the long-termist philosophy, just to push this a bit further, which humans exactly get to be these immortal digital cyborgs that you've been speaking of? Whose humanity will survive to that point? Yeah, it's it's a great question. One of the reasons why I think long-termism is uh, a dangerous ideology and why I am very concerned that it's become 
massively influential in the world and and you know among like tech elite and you know in uh, increasingly in you know governments uh, major world governments um is that yeah the the some long term for example have explicitly stated that from, that on their particular uh that particular view things like alleviating global poverty uh are good in in an absolute sense they would unhesitatingly affirm that but since we have finite resources there's a question of how to prioritize how do we allocate those resources and uh on the long term as view it's just much better to spend it on for example reducing extinction risk uh than on alleviating global poverty and so there's another long termist um writing in a uh, 2013 document that became uh that's kind of one of the foundational documents and he's explicit that on this long termist view we should prioritize saving the lives of people in rich countries over saving the lives of of people in poor countries. Why is that? Well, because in rich countries you have much more economic productivity, more innovation, and so on. Those are the things that are going to uh, determine how the the very far future goes. Thousands, you know, hundreds, thousands, billions, trillions of years in the future. Um, so a lot of the the attitudes is sort of racism, xenophobia, ableism, classism, sexism that you that are just ubiquitous within that first wave uh, eugenics movement. Uh, you find traces of them and residues of them all over the place in long-termism. Uh, so there is a, I, I think one should be genuinely alarmed by the, you know, the, by by the, this this tendency to value the lives of certain people more than the lives of of other people, and. Yeah, and actually, there, there's a, a really interesting paper by a guy at the Open University in in the UK named uh, Mustafa Ali, and he basically argues that one way you could think of transhumanism actually is as a response to white crisis, and whereas you have this dynamic that you find today between, uh, you know, the, the way to explain it would be you've got human here, and then the subaltern, which is kind of like subhuman. So you've got, and who is the humans? Kind of, it's kind of the white, the, the, the kind of it was white people, and with transhumanism, you basically just transpose that. So you've got transhuman human, and so you get the same sort of power dynamic in moving in the into the future, into this transhuman future, if if uh, that's what we end up in. Um, those same you know sort of power dynamics might be uh, preserved, and consequently you know. White supremacy, the unnamed political system that makes the world what it is today, uh, might be just, you know, reinforced. Given this tendency, Professor Daniel, is it even ethical for science to try and study immortality further? And is it something you worry about, given the existence of the Hydra? I, I think that, yeah, I, I worry about it. And as I said before, I think that we should, you know, decide what we want to study. It, I don't think that we should be limits to what our dreams. I think that a scientist should be creative and should try to pursue any idea that they have. But then there are ethic limits, right? So most of the research is done in the first in the first world, for example. Uh, diseases of the third world, like malaria, don't get the funding that heart uh, diseases get because they're you know 
they are affecting Africans, not so much as Americans or the, or the first world, let's call it the first world, Europe and, and the U.S. So, yeah, those are important decisions and the, and the funding should be there. But, you know, but those are, that's a political question. It's not a scientific question. Should we study heart disease? Yes. Should we study malaria? Yes. But we don't make that decision. The decision is made by politicians of who gets funding for what. I mean, why, why male research gets a lot more money than white female research and certainly more than third world research? Um, because the richest countries are concerned about themselves, right? So, but that's not a, a decision made by scientists. I think we scientists should, you know, dream of whatever questions we want to study and, and go for it. But then it's a, it's a political decision. This conversation would be incomplete without addressing death and mortality. So to put the question the other way, is it the ethical choice to never try to transcend mortality for these reasons? And at the end of the day, is the acceptance of death more humane than aspiring to agelessness? Yeah, again, I, I, one of the big worries is the possibility that this these technologies, if they're actually developed, will just you know greatly exacerbate inequalities in the world. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't. Some people object to uh, so-called bioconservatives. You know, will, will object to, to some of this radical human enhancement uh, technology by saying, you know, we're we're playing God and we shouldn't do that. That argument doesn't move me <laughs> at all. Um, but I do worry that in practice, uh, developing these technologies. The most likely way that we would develop them, it seems right now, is is a way that you know the people at the very top, you know Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, first, and maybe people you know at sort of the the, the lower slopes of opportunity, of advantage, and so on, um, might never get access to them. I mean, there's there's also maybe something worth mentioning briefly, which is that there there has been some really interesting philosophical discussion, which I, I'm not an expert on, so you, I'm not sure I could recall the details of the debate, but it's worth just registering that some philosophers uh, have definitely argued that. Death is a tragedy. Of course, we can we can all accept that, but it's a tragedy that is integral to the ability for us to for for our lives to have meaning. And that if we were to therefore eliminate death, then the the results would be catastrophic in terms of our our ability to find meaning and purpose in our lives. So the you know the the fact of death, the the uncertainty of when. Uh, we will, you know, ultimately end our journey from the the, the cradle and then into into the grave. Um, gives a certain kind of, you know, urgency uh, and purpose to our actions in the present. And so, I'm not entirely sure uh, how I feel about the, these arguments, but I, I I don't dismiss them just out of hand. Yeah, I agree. When people ask me, "Would you like to be immortal?" I say no. I think that it wouldn't be the same life. I mean, the life as we know it will completely change if we were to live 300 years, even not being immortal, but 300 years, I would probably procrastinate it all more because I would have the feeling that I need to accomplish something now because I have 200 more years to live. So, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I don't see... Okay, when I talk about funding, funding is biased towards the first world in research. 
but I don't see a bias towards immortality because I think that Hydra is an example that is pretty unique and everybody understands that it's pretty unique. I don't think that people ask me constantly, what can we learn from your studies on Hydra that can be applied to humans? And my answer is very little uh, because it's a completely different beast. Thank you so much, um, both of you, Emil and Dr. Martinez. It was a really, really interesting conversation and I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to try and connect both of these ideas together to unpack the idea of the ethics of immortality and whether it's even worth aspiring to in the end. That's our episode on the missing link between the tiny yet enigmatic Hydra and its mysterious agelessness coveted by the elite amongst us humans. If we dealt with what it means to grapple with time in this episode, we take on space in the next one. We're asking two people about humans' experiences in space and how taking disability seriously can be the key to unlocking science's greatest mysteries. Stay tuned. This podcast has been written and produced by Rohita Narhari Sethi and Ananya Singh. Sound designer and associate producer is Vibhav Sara. The art director on the series is Neha Shekhawat and the designer is Hitesh Sonar. The executive producer is Karna Pukman. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios, the production company that brings this world's point of view to original podcasts and films.